Well, hello and welcome. Uh, my name is Guy Stevens, and I want to welcome you to our special event today. Uh, I am, of course, the founder and executive director of the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. Uh, I started the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint about three years ago to raise awareness about the use of restraint and seclusion in schools across the nation and really beyond. Our mission has been to educate the public and really connect people together who are dedicated to changing minds, laws, policies, practices, so that restraint and seclusion are reduced and eliminated in schools across the nation and beyond. Our vision is to see safer schools for students, teachers, and staff. Uh, I always say now that, you know, while this is where we started, we started with a lot of focus on education and schools. Uh, we really care deeply, not just about restraint and seclusion, but also about all the things that are happening to kids and youth in the name of behavior. That's not just restraint and seclusion, but it can be suspension, expulsion, corporal punishment. Uh, it can be pushing kids down the school to prison pipeline. And of course, these things that we're talking about, these practices like restraint and seclusion, they don't just happen in schools. They can happen in residential facilities. Uh, they can be wilderness programs or camps. They can be the troubled teen industry. They can be even in medical settings. So we care deeply about these things that are happening anywhere and really want to encourage better practices to better support kids and youth across the world. Uh, now, I'm very excited today to have a uh, another person out there that's really trying to do amazing work to influence change and in the, the way that we're um, supporting people and the way that we treat people. Uh, his name is Jesse Kohler. Uh, Jesse is joining us today from the Campaign for Trauma-Informed Policy and Practice, uh, also called CTIP. Uh, CTIP was created in December of uh, 2015 and uh, represented by uh, 25 representatives from diverse sectors, including education, mental health, justice, and government. I do wanna remind you all before I introduce Jesse that our session today is being recorded as always. So uh, this will be recorded. It will be available on Facebook and YouTube. We also make it available as an audio podcast. So if you wanna listen to it while you drive, you can download it on iTunes, on your favorite Android uh, app as well. So lots of opportunities to, to listen to it. So let me go ahead now and bring Jesse up on the screen with me here. Uh, good good afternoon. I almost said good morning. I'm really confused. Uh, although, you know, in fairness, we have people from across the world that are tuning in. So uh, good morning to you wherever you are, where it might be morning, just in case I get that wrong. So um, really excited to have you, Jesse, joining us today. And I'm going to give you a brief introduction. Um, so, um, you know, before we get started with the interview, so you are the executive director of the Campaign for Trauma-Informed Policy and Practice, CTIP. Uh, you are a passionate advocate and leader in the trauma-informed space who works on systems uh, of change to provide comprehensive supports for individuals, families, and communities so that someday all people will have the opportunity and support necessary to reach their full potential. Uh, I know from having conversations with you before, you're very, very passionate about this work. Uh, I know you're now working as well. Uh, and let me, hopefully I'm right here uh, uh, as an associate of the Council for Strong America. Is that correct? So that was my prior job. Your prior job. Okay. 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 I, I apologize about that. I was, no, I was you're going, okay. Uh, and uh, you've been on the steering committee for the Child Trauma and ACES Policy Working Group. Uh, you consider yourself a passionate uh, advocate and, again, believe that, you know, we need trauma-informed, resilience-focused, healing-centered uh, policies and practices that would improve society drastically. And it's interesting because we say something very similar when we talk about schools. We talk about trauma-informed, neuroscience-aligned, collaborative, relationship-driven, kind of all of these things that, that are in common. So, um, Jesse, thank you. Uh, I want to welcome you again uh, for joining us today. Really excited to have you here and learn more about you and learn more about the work that you're doing. Yeah, Guy, thank you. Um, and just to clear it up, like when you introduced me as working for CSA, 
when we first met, I, I was similar to you, uh, you know, in a managing role for CTIP um, as a board member and really like volunteering almost as much time as I was working my full-time job. Uh, so appreciate the work that you do. It's great to see you. Great to be here. Absolutely. No, and I, I hear you. Um, well, let's just dive in. I've got a lot of questions for you. And uh, I want to remind the audience that, you know, this is this is really kind of an informal interview. Uh, we're going to have, um, you know, I have a number of questions here prepared, but I also want to encourage you that are watching today. Uh, one, feel free to introduce yourself in the chat. We'd love to know who you are and where you're from. Uh, I was telling uh, Jesse earlier that we've got people from across the world. So I'd love to see some of my, my friends in Australia or New Zealand or uh, the UK, wherever you might be, uh, pop up and say hello. Uh, but if you have questions as we're going along or questions in general, feel free to put those in the chat at any time and we'll try to keep an eye on that. So with that, let me just get started with a couple of basic questions. And, you know, I think I explained to you that we've got a pretty broad audience and, you know, we've got people that have a lot of experience uh, related to trauma-informed practices and we have people that are really still kind of learning about trauma and the impact of trauma. So I wanted to start off with just a very, very basic question, which is we all hear the word trauma, right? We hear, oh, that was traumatic, that was traumatizing. Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about how you define trauma and what you mean when you're talking about trauma and, and creating a trauma-informed society? Yeah, and, and I think, Guy, to your point, I mean, it is important to recognize that the word trauma right now is thrown around so much that there are almost multiple definitions for it when people are talking. Are we talking about at a clinical level of trauma? Um, you know, other people think about sort of blunt force, a, a car accident, sort of like a single moment um, that is traumatic. Um, you know, there are sort of multiple potential definitions for what trauma means. To me, it is overwhelming adversity and chronic stress that can load up over time. That certainly can happen in an instant where moments change, um, you know, our entire lives. It can also be a buildup of what's called allostatic uh, load or allostasis and just sort of the chronic overload of stress and adversity. Um, it may not reach the level of trauma, but there's both big T and little t traumas that can influence people's lives. And, and sort of the work that we are doing is that systems can be put in place to help prevent against you know, such extreme adversity and stress. And similar to what you were saying earlier about, you know, the language that you use, having relationships, having systems in place that create the relationships that allow for there to be help, healthy outlets and for the creation of sort of healthy coping mechanisms to work through that stress and adversity is very important because, you know, adversity and stress can make us stronger. There, there is post-traumatic growth. There is post-traumatic wisdom that can come through that, but we need resources and supports in order to get through that. That stress and adversity can also make us crumble if we're walking through this alone, if we don't have the resources and supports. And that weight that we carry with us can just really become too much. And so to me, again, trauma broadly is, is just this overload of stress and adversity. Um, and it's pretty universal. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You, you said a couple things there that they caught my ear. One of the things you said early on, and, and this is really, I think, uh, something pretty important, is that um, while probably like you, I'm really happy to see more awareness around trauma. 
Uh, I also have concerns about dilution of the word through everything then becoming, um, you know, related to trauma in some way. And, and that, um, you know, for instance, um, you know, while I support trauma-informed approaches, say, in education, uh, I, I don't think you necessarily go through a half an hour training session one day and then are trauma-informed. I think there's there's more to it than that. So, you know, in, in your um, experience, um, how do we how do we move to really kind of that depth of understanding, um, you know, beyond just the, the word trauma into helping people to understand not only what trauma is, but what the impacts of trauma are? Yeah, I mean, I I hope that, you know, we can become more process oriented where there is delayed gratification and not going through that one hour training about the ACEs study and mm -hmm. saying I'm trauma informed. There's something called the Missouri model that was created um, that shows sort of the continuum of working from trauma aware to trauma. Um, you know, it, it essentially goes from trauma aware, which that one hour training could help to do. Right. Right. Up toward the end goal of being trauma informed with steps in between. And, you know, I, I think that I've been in training personally, uh, I am just getting done two more classes um, in terms of my continuing trauma education. And it's been three years and I still don't consider myself to be trauma informed. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that trauma informed is sort of like the goal that we can't quite reach. Right. Mm -hmm. we, we can't possibly know everybody's triggers. We can't possibly know every like, you know, how to prevent, um, you know, doing our part. Right. Preventing avoiding um, retriggering, responding effectively and providing therapeutic interventions, doing our part, P-A-R-T. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that I hope that we get to a place where trauma-informed becomes the goal mm -hmm. of, you know, we understand the neuroscience. We understand how developmental adversity impacts people, how stress impacts the human brain, mind, body, spirit, mm -hmm. um, and act in ways that sort of align around those beliefs mm -hmm. and continue on the long journey of continuing to improve systems, continuing to come to greater recognition and awareness ourselves, which is a lifelong process of improvement. Mm -hmm. And that's more so how I see it as opposed to, Oh, I did one training. I'm good. Right. Right. right, it, right there's right. always more that we can learn. There's always sure. ways that we can, um, you know, when we get to a point uh, of really understanding a new concept, well, then we reflect and make sure that we are constantly in that stage of reflection. Mm -hmm. Sometimes when we reflect, we find new areas that we need to learn more about, mm -hmm. you know, and that's what I think we're really working. So, so again, more, more of a journey than a destination. We, yeah. we don't arrive at, at trauma informed, but we continue to make a journey and learn more and do better uh, as we go. So you, you mentioned something briefly and, and, um, I think a lot of people may have some familiarity with it, but some might not. Uh, so I think it's worth touching on a little bit. And you mentioned the ACEs study, which of course was the adverse childhood experiences study. Can you talk a little bit, just kind of at a high level of what the ACEs study was, uh, what what the implications of that were, and and how that uh, played into um, kind of a lot of the, the research now around trauma, if I could put you on the spot for that. Yeah. So the original ACEs study was published, I want to say it was 1998. And it looked at 10 categories, 10 discrete categories of what I'll call potentially traumatic events. 
they themselves are not necessarily traumatic, but they are adverse childhood experiences that could potentially lead to trauma. And so it sort of circled um, abuse, neglect, and dysfunction broadly, um, you know, household dysfunction, dysfunction in the household, as well as different forms of abuse and neglect. And what those 10 categories showed and why it was so pivotal is that there was a graded correlation between the number of ACEs that a respondent in the study, which looked at over 17,000 participants in the original ACEs study, there was a graded correlation between the number of ACEs that someone experienced and various health, behavioral, and social outcomes later in life. It ranged from you know substance use to alcoholism to heart disease, cancers, um, many of the top killers of Americans in our society today. And so, you know, while some people look at it and say, well, of course, that's what we found. What it allows for us to do by looking at a discrete number of, um, you know, these adverse childhood experiences, it allowed for us to quantify um, how many, like sort of these outcomes over the, over the long run. And, you know, that was what made the ACEs study so important that we saw that if you have four or more ACEs, which in the original ACEs study was 12 and a half percent of the population, we know that in the broader population, it may be closer to 16, 18 percent of the population. You have a more than 1000 percent greater likelihood. It was 1030 percent greater likelihood of partaking in intravenous drug usage. And we look at our society today and the news that came out yesterday that over a 12 month period, we had over 100,000 overdose deaths and see how our society can be better at preventing as well as reducing the progression of adversity across the lifespan to improve outcomes. And the ACEs study really helped to highlight that across many dimensions of our society. It, it was a launching pad for the trauma-informed movement in so many ways. Yeah, and, and we often talk about, you know, trauma is forever. I mean, when you know individuals that have been experienced to, uh, you know, experience significant trauma and adversity, uh, that doesn't go away. You know, we, we deal with, of course, you know, here at the Alliance Against Seclusion Restraint, one of the, the main focuses is on, um, you know, really trauma that might happen in a system, you know, trauma that might happen in a in a school. Uh, and of course, we we work with organizations that look at trauma that happen in, in the troubled teen industry and things like that. And these aren't things that just go away. Um, you know, from your experience, I mean, how does that trauma that a child, um, you know, experiences, I mean, how does that affect them 10 years later or 15 years later? So I think that, you know, the best way to answer that may be to share a little bit about myself. Hmm. Um, and, you know, when I was 13, uh, so so just to be clear, I mean, my technical ACEs score from those 10 categories is zero. I, I, I have an incredibly blessed, uh, you know, childhood. I, 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 have a fa- I have a family that, you know, provided as much as possible for me um, in, in so many ways. And I got lucky across those 10 ACE categories. But when I was 13, I had an eating disorder where I choked on a piece of food um, and had vicious anxiety attacks, like very visceral reactions whenever a piece of food was near me, which then sort of cascaded into other traumas, right? I wasn't nourishing myself. I I was drinking Ensure, um, 
you know, like eight, nine times a day just to get enough caloric intake to mm. survive. Um, and that went on for several months. And, you know, so I, I can get into the reaction uh, in a bit, but, but then when I was 15, I also lost my best friend um, in, in a plane crash. And, oh, gosh. Um, you know, when, when you have a loss that hard to your point that you don't move past that really. Right. Like, I mean, there, there are some things in life we, I, you move through it, but that's always with you, right? Mm -hmm. Like those things that happen in life that just, you, you can't get back and, and that loss can be so difficult. And, you know, so I think that what happens is when you have those supports, going back to what I said, sort of at the beginning, when there are supports in place, when there are resources in place, to nurture people's growth, which takes a long time through the process of processing grief and trauma and, and, and coping and finding a new way to, you know, function in this life of ours. When, when those resources and supports are there, um, there is that post-traumatic growth. You're able to grow stronger, um, you know, in, in many ways. I, I think that that's why I'm in the position that I'm in at such a young age is because I had those resources and supports, found purpose and meaning through the experiences that I had, and now want to make sure that as much as possible, other people don't have to go through those same experiences that I did. And when you do have a traumatic moment or when there is unrelenting adversity that you're going through, that there are supports in our society to help those people. At the same time, to, to your question, you know, there are a lot of people who are not so lucky to have all of those resources and supports, which is why we work towards systemic change. So that way, those that that is available for all people, you know, in in the brief bio that you read about me, that that work to allow for all people to have resources and support so that they may reach their full potential. Like that's sort of what I'm talking about. But again, like, you know, traumatic moments can very much change the way that at, we behave, the way that we think about ourselves and others and interact with the world around us and sort of lead to a, a cycle of trauma where we engage in behaviors and, and social and, or antisocial behaviors that can sort of reinforce you are bad or, or this is who I am and really get into dangerous cycles um, that essentially perpetuate negative outcomes. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I don't want to overlook the fact that it is that that trauma and stress and adversity can certainly lead to negative outcomes. And many times in our society, unfortunately, they do. But mm -hmm. I also just want to highlight that at the same time, when resources and supports are available, people can grow through them and, and, and become stronger. Mm -hmm. You know, one, one of the things we talk about uh, quite a bit um, you know, related to our work is, is kind of the, um, you know, the school-based trauma cycle, you know, so, um, but, but I think that all trauma follows a potential cycle and you just hit it right there. You, you basically said that the more we're traumatized, the more we're apt to, to be further traumatized. And that's what we see in schools sometimes is that kids that have already had a traumatic history are, are more likely to find themselves on the uh, negative side of kind of punitive approaches. So they're more likely to be restrained, secluded, suspended, expelled, even in some states still exposed to corporal punishment. And, and kids that, 
you know, have that trauma history, of course, are more apt to be hypervigilant. Kids that are more apt to be hypervigilant are more apt to be scanning their environments for, for threat and danger. Uh, kids that are hypervigilant may be more apt to engage in distress-related behaviors. And then those distress-related behaviors, if not properly recognized and, and, and worked with, may lead to escalation, which might lead to a fight and flight response. And, and you get this cycle that evolves because then the punitive approaches happen and, and further traumatization occurs. And, and the same kids are just you know, continually re-traumatized. And, and I think that holds true of adults as well. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's a really interesting point and something we definitely see kind of in the realm that we're, we're dealing with a lot here with that kind of school to prison pipeline. But let me stop for a second and back up. And we've got a couple of comments coming up here, which we'll get to in a second. But I just wanted to continue down a path that you started on. You were, you were talking a little bit about kind of your, your backstory about what happened to you and, and what you were experiencing and, and how that resulted in, in trauma. I, I wonder if you might share with us a little bit about, because I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that perhaps there's a connection between your experience and, and the path you've taken in terms of uh, your work. So I wonder if you might be able to tell us a little bit more about your journey and, and how you went from, you know, the situation that you were in to where you are today. Yeah, so uh, there is absolutely a direct pathway. Uh, well, actually, it's quite indirect and very circuitous. But my early experiences did lead to um, sort of the path that I've been fortunate enough, uh, you know, to A, create for myself, but also have people help create uh, for me. And I got lucky with the development of CTIP at the right time. But so in college, um, you know, I struggled academically. I, I graduated with, uh, you know, academics was not what I loved uh, at that time. It's what I saw as having to do. Uh, but I wanted to be uh, an attorney or a professional baseball player. I played baseball in college, but that didn't work out. And then didn't have the grades to go to law school and, um, you know, found a lot of solace and, and enjoyment in nonprofit work. So I knew that I wanted to do nonprofit work and did research in college on the school to prison pipeline. And so I went to uh, a nonprofit in the Philadelphia area, which is where I'm from, called 12 Plus, um, that was a new nonprofit. I was in a one-year fellowship program working at an inner city public high school and uh, saw the promise of, the, of reform to the education system as being such a valuable journey and endeavor for my life. The, 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 the systems change, the, the cultural change, the social change that could occur if we created better opportunity for all students would be vast. And so I went into a master's in educational leadership. And while I was in that master's in educational leadership, um, it was 2017. And uh, this was at the point in the opioid epidemic when uh, synthetic opiates were being introduced into the drug supply. And so we were seeing those huge spikes in overdose deaths at that point. And so for the state of Pennsylvania, the office of attorney general, Josh Shapiro was developing a new office called the office of public engagement that was working on creating the Pennsylvania trauma informed care network. And um, that was where I learned about trauma informed care. And just like I saw how transforming the education system could lead to such change. I saw how integrating trauma informed care in not just into the education system, but into society and systems widely could create such better outcomes, such 
help improve and make people help live, help people live better lives. And so I just dove full into this trauma-informed care work. Um, I wrote my master's thesis on trauma-informed education and then, you know, got into, started as an intern for CTIP when it was first launching and then quickly became a board member after I, in between what I do now um, and graduating from my master's program and uh, my internship at the attorney general's office uh, being complete. I worked as the director of development at a community center in Philadelphia. So I had nonprofit development experience, was brought onto the board to help fundraise for CTIP um, and got really invested in the policy level work. And I found as we developed initiatives like the trauma campaign and as we were advocating for policy change that leveraging my past experiences. Uh, so, so two things here. First of all, understanding and gaining knowledge and language and understanding about how stress and adversity impact people helped me understand my own upbringing, right? My developmental adversity that I sort of shared a little bit of earlier, understanding how that influenced me across the lifespan going into college and likely being a reason that I wasn't able to focus well in classes all the time, um, you know, and, you know, sort of understanding that at a different level, having compassion for myself, but then also being able to leverage those situations and advocate for change. Um, so that way, like I said earlier, people don't have to hopefully go through the same pain and experiences that I had to go through, became a healing process for myself. And, and so the policy work um, I sort of saw as combining my aspirations to change the world with the work that I was doing in communities because policy very much creates conditions in communities that allow for change and transformation to take place. Or they do the opposite and bad policy can certainly thwart like chances to make that change. But, you know, got very invested in the policy work and, you know, just sort of continued the process and, and still continuing the process of just trying to get this science, this information mm -hmm. into the greater public consciousness more so and into our general operating system. So that way we prevent developmental adversity to the best extent possible, but also reduce the progression of adversity across the lifespan and really have processes to be able to do so, not focus solely on outcomes, which is often why we end up having patchwork policies and short-term solutions, but really focusing on processes that ultimately leverage and create better outcomes, but we're focused on processes that really meet our needs as human beings and mm -hmm. as our society mm -hmm. overall. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for sharing that that story. And, uh, uh, you know, um, life sometimes takes us in, in directions that weren't our, um, our, our plan direction. Um, you know, I, I kind of joke with people now that I never thought at any point that I had a plan to be a, uh, an advocate for children's civil rights. And, uh, yet, yet this is, this is where I've been, uh, recently, but, you know, I think sometimes life takes us where it needs us. And I really appreciate the work that you're doing here. I want to take a moment and get to a few questions and comments that we have here. Uh, and I'm just going to pull a couple up here. This is a comment from Annette Smith, who says, I think one of the biggest ACEs that's ignored is the trauma caused by education. Autistic children being denied appropriate supports and carried into school screaming. Um, you know, it's a really great point on a couple of uh, levels. One is that, you know, I found that 
you know, even with uh, very passionate and and well-informed uh, folks in education, sometimes there's a blind spot. You know, there's a blind spot into school-based trauma or trauma that may happen in settings where people don't think they're traumatizing people. But, you know, as a parent of a child that was secluded and restrained in a school, um, you know, my child was not ready to go back into that school or any other school for some time because of the trauma it was caused. And this this um, commenter brings up a, a really great point. You know, when, when I find kids that are being restrained, secluded, suspended, expelled, you know, a, a corporal punishment uh, being done to them, uh, you know, what I often see is a child that's not having their needs appropriately met. Um, so what are your thoughts here about, you know, kind of looking at uh, maybe the blind spots that exist out there, you know, in terms of uh, institutions and even thinking about, uh, I'll take it one step further, just to throw something else at you, but, you know, thinking about what's the impact of systemic racism or, or other things that our systems maybe not, um, you know, choosing to to uh, operate in certain ways, but have been set up in certain ways that they really give us disproportionate impact and uh, aren't meeting the needs well of, of many children. So any thought on that in terms of kind of the idea of um, systems and blind spots? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, <laughs> this may just be the idealistic 27-year-old that I am, um, but I, I really believe that we have systems that expect for people to work for our systems. We are organized for people to work for our systems rather than having systems that work for all people, right? And, and I think that what, what I really mean by that is to all of the experiences that you just sort of shared, we, we have a narrow definition of what like an ideal citizen is, essentially. And, and if people don't fit that neat definition, which to your point is sort of this, this homogenous idea of, you know, uh, oftentimes like a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, like sort of, you know, niche uh, culturally individual, but then otherwise in terms of ability and experiences, like we want for people to fit into these systems and, and sort of package neatly into how our, our systems operate. And I think that when people don't fit into those you know, that sort of definition, which I certainly didn't, and most people don't, um, we have an inability and inflexibility to adapt and manage different people's experiences. And so oftentimes that's met with frustration. It's met with a lack of compassion and empathy. You know, so often the people who are operating the systems in fairness to them are so overburdened, overstressed that you know, they just end up having compassion fatigue and burnout and, and they're just over like what, what needs to be done to ultimately support the students. Like the, the, the fracturing in our systems is just, and this is beyond just education, like you said, but you know, there, there isn't the flexibility and understanding that allows for us or the capacity, frankly, to meet the needs of those that we really need to serve. And so just you know, it's, it's a loaded question that I'm trying to put into a, you know, sort of tight little package and maybe not doing the best job. But, you know, there are to, to, to the questions point, um, going back to Annette's point here, like what what is concerning is that that isn't a traditional ace. Right. But that is certainly an adverse childhood experience. Guy, what you shared, your son went through. That is an adverse childhood experience that that is adversity that 
has a lasting impact sort of that you had to work through, right? And, and that your son had to work through to get back into schools and be comfortable. And I know that you've shared sort of, you know, the process that that took with me before. Um, ACEs are not contained to 10 experiences. I mean, there is an infinitely complex life that we live in. And there are nearly an infinite number of potential traumas that we can experience at any time in our lives. And so how those shape us, and if our systems are unable to meet the needs that we have based on how our experiences have shaped us in the past, then we just see frustration start to mount from all sides and it just creates more chaos than it does solutions. And it just perpetuates problems. We're sort of um, I, I feel like I'm rambling a bit, but we're, we're just in this system where we're unable to deal with systemic racism and even have a common language to talk about it. We're not able to appreciate the adversity that students with developmental disabilities or intellectual disabilities may have in the classrooms and meet the needs that they have while making schools a safe environment for them so that they can continue to learn and reach their full potential and be contributing members, um, you know, to, to society, both during school and afterward, it's sort of like we, we try to talk people that don't fit into a neat box away uh, instead of really having systems that are flexible enough to deal with the infinite complexity that exists in our world. You're, you're muted. So. Thank you. I knew that was going to happen. A minute ago, I was watching. I, I had some dogs barking in the background, so <laughs> muted for a second. But what I was going to say is that that then, of course, leads to, you know, traumatizing experiences when, you know, one of the things that, that again, we, we commonly see are, you know, um, you know, kids are, are traumatized in these environments, but people don't really take into account what happens. And Annette went on further to talk about, you know, kind of the the parents also experiencing trauma. And, and I've talked to, not only in fighting the system, but when things are happening to your child. Um, so that's a great point, Annette, about, you know, it's, it's traumatizing to fight the system, to get appropriate supports. And, and I think one of the points that you brought up here, Jesse, and, and this is really important, is that, uh, again, you know, when we think about really, truly making that shift to a trauma-informed society, uh, one of the things that I, I commonly say is that when we talk about trauma-informed schools, we're not just talking about the kids, but we need to have a trauma-informed approach that is supporting the staff, that's supporting the administration. Uh, you know, a, a teacher that's feeling hypervigilant is not going to be able to support a student appropriately. Uh, a teacher that's feeling, um, you know, trauma or has even been through some of the events that we talk about, you know, it's traumatic, not only on a child that might be restrained and secluded, but also on the adults that might be doing it, on kids that might be witnessing it. Um, so, you know, again, I think that uh, there's a lot of trauma that can come through uh, these institutions that may not, you know, again, they, they may have good intent, uh, but sometimes, um, you know, these events that are happening, I think, are are really important to consider. Um, you know, and, you know, and that goes on to say then you end up with a traumatized parent trying their best uh, to support a traumatized child. And, of course, having been traumatized, you know, Annette, um, you know, what happens then is as a parent, you might become hypervigilant. We sometimes are looking for conflict when maybe there's not because, you know, as somebody that's scanning our environment for danger, we sometimes when we're in that hypervigilant state, see it when it may not even be there. Um, so that can be, you know, certainly an impact of, of some of that um, trauma as well. Wouldn't, wouldn't you agree, Jesse? 
Absolutely. I mean, yeah. and, and, you know, the stress that exists in a household, and I think that we've seen this, you know, sort of COVID has been, um, you know, the pandemic has been a very unique experience where really our core relationships boiled down to the household and where we lived. But the stress experienced by a parent is often experienced by the children. Like you mentioned, Guy, a, a dysregulated adult cannot help to regulate a dysregulated right. child. And we right. know that as social creatures, we are programmed to feed off of one another. Co-regulation or co-dysregulation is very real. Mm -hmm. And so the adversity and trauma and stress that parents have to deal with to get their kids the, the support that they need can then end up you know, having sort of this manifestation um, very broadly. So in, in shorter words, yes, I, I couldn't agree more. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, so I have something strange that popped into my head here. Um, and I'm just curious of, of your response, because one of the things we sometimes hear um, is people diminish the impact of trauma and adversity um, kind of by simply saying, well, you know, uh, I, I, I went through that, you know, uh, my parents beat me when I was a kid or this happened to me when I was a child. And look, I turned out just fine. Um, I'm just curious if you have a, a thought or response on that. I mean, you know, I think in, in, in part, I mean, maybe it's a, a defense mechanism as well. But, you know, certainly um, sometimes people aren't empathetic to, you know, again, you know, I, I think about the the new Bruce Perry and Oprah Winfrey book about kind of, um, you know, what happened to you? I think I've got sitting here behind me. And I think I saw you looking over at your uh, bookshelf as well. Um, yep. Yep. That's the one. And, you know, I think about that reframing of, you know, um, you know, what happened to you versus, you know, what's, what's wrong with you. Um, but, you know, there are tendencies out there for people to minimize this. How do you address that? How do you um, successfully bring people along to understand the impacts of trauma? I think that we need to learn effective communication strategies. I do believe that the intent is good um, for a lot of those people. And, and, you know, a lot of the people who say something like, um, well, I went through this and I'm fine. Like a lot of times there's unprocessed grief that they are still dealing with that may be, like you said, maybe they don't want to really touch that. But, um, you know, in my trainings, I've, I've learned a skill called active listening. Um, and a response like that is, uh, not active listening. Uh, that is very much story stealing. That is, um, you know, trying to create a quick solution. And a lot of times, you know, a response, a, a single conversation, while it can make an impact and influence people's directions, very rarely are, is, is like an exact answer going to meet it, a, a whole person's needs and solve everything. A, lo a lot more times people just need to be heard like really seriously hurt. And the other thing that I just want to bring up, which is a, uh, is another Dr. Bruce Perry principle, is um, the three R's, which, you know, when we are trauma impacted or highly stressed, we, we can't be in our cortex. Our brain develops from the bottom up and from the inside out. So we go from brainstem to midbrain to the limbic system, the emotional center for the brain, then to the cortex, the cognitive processes. Stress will make us go down toward that midbrain brainstem section. We lose functional IQ points. And that is where, you know, regulation or dysregulation happens. That's essentially when we are in a state of fight, flight, or freeze, which some people live 
a lot of their lives in. And that is where the outcomes of toxic stress really start to play into those long-term health outcomes. But what, what that response doesn't quite recognize and appreciate is that the child is, or, or the person, if, if they are in a dysregulated state is not at a place to think about the future, to consider all of these implications or sort of what they're saying. Like, first we need to regulate and just help them relax. And then we need to relate because as social beings, we need that trust. We need that security. And when we feel secure, when we feel safe, both in terms of in our relationships, as well as in our environments, then we can at, access our cortex. That's when we can have that forward right. thinking thought right. to then have a conversation about this is tough, but but you are going to get through this. And I think that that approach leads to compassion and just allowing conversations to happen where you don't have the answer. You're just there to listen and be present with the person. Brene Brown has a ton of unbelievable talks about empathy. And, you know, I think that that's more so where conversations need to go to be healthier mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. than just, I, I went through this, you'll get through this too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I, I love what you were saying there. Um, Thinking about the brain, um, I'm going to bring up another uh, comment here. Uh, you were talking a little bit about uh, the way the brain works. And of course, there's a lot of interesting things there. I mean, we don't even really get the full development in our, our, our frontal lobes until we're, what, 24, 25 years old. Uh, you know, we expect kids to have uh, executive function skills that they may not even reach until they're much older. But uh, if I can ask you to put on your, your neuroscience hat for a second, um, you know, what, as much as you're comfortable with. You know, we know that trauma causes lasting changes in the brain. So getting to this question or this comment about, you know, I, I wish you would cover more on how uh, it impacts the adult brain. C- can you talk a little bit about the changes that occur in the brain due to that childhood uh, trauma or extended adversity that somebody might be through, might go through and, and how that might affect them later in life? And I know you we've hit on a little bit of that so far, but could you talk a little bit about the brain itself? Yeah. So uh, just to be clear, I am not a neuroscientist or just want to put that out there. Um, But Peter Levine, I believe that it's Dr. Peter Levine, Mm -hmm. has something called the hand model of the brain, where he talks about within our hand, we can really describe the brain, where we have our midbrain, the brain stem, those like core functioning skills. And then we have that limbic system maybe that has the emotional top. And then we have the cortex that has that cognitive thinking ability, right? And this is sort of the structure of the brain, again, bottom up and inside out, right? And when there is adversity, when there are triggers, we can flip our lid is sort of his description, and we don't have access to our cortex, right? We may be in the midbrain, we may be in the limbic system, we may be overly emotional, we may not even be in a place of emotion, we may just be in that fight, flight, freeze place. And what happens Um, To the question, I think that in addition to how trauma impacts adults, which it can have a major impact, I mean, at any point in our lives, we are always, our brains are plastic, right? Neuroplasticity is very real, and that can both work for us, but also can create conditions in which we go through a traumatic incident, and we have sort of like life-altering outcomes because of that. But what's interesting about how, you know, trauma impacts adults and adults' brains 
is that when there is developmental adversity, when there is developmental trauma, because our brains are developing from the bottom up and the inside out, that trauma, that really core trauma that happens to us when we're children impacts us disproportionately. And like we've been saying, it, 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 it impacts us throughout the lifespan. And so when we say that, you know, people's brains are developed by 25, I, I think that I don't know this for sure. I think that we don't know enough about the brain to, to say that so, um, you know, universally. And then guy, I mean, you're not wrong. That is commonly said, but you know, I think that we really need to understand that, you know, there are trauma organized individuals because of adversity that they've faced in their lives, that their brains are wired for adversity, that their Mm -hmm. brains are wired toward stress. And there's actually more comfort in that stress because that's so core to their functioning. And so, they may like there are people who may not have regular access to their cortex. There, mm-hmm. there, there may be people that that wiring that we say is like done when you're 25 mm-hmm. isn't really there. And we don't meet the, the, the neurosequential needs to sort of elevate folks in that way. And so I, I think that, you know, when I think about how trauma impacts adults, it is both you know, the stress and this, the stress that adults face, right. Having a job, having a family, if, if, you know, that's what it is, just life in general. Um, but then also how developmental adversity impacts us throughout our lives and how that impacts our responses and can either perpetuate or work against those cycles of trauma and how that sort of continues to shape our experience as human beings hmm. as time moves on is sort of what I thought with that question. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Great. All, all great points. And of course, you know, I, I was watching something earlier today that was showing kind of brain scans and, and differences in activity uh, between a traumatized brain and, and a typical brain. Uh, and, and, you know, again, there are real changes that occur in the brain that can have a lasting effect, you know, and, and we can think about, you know, what those attributes might mean, but it might mean, again, uh, uh, living a little bit more in the lower brain, being more reactive, uh, you know, we certainly see some of the problems that can emerge from that as well. Um, so, yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, this is more of a comment here. Uh, Sunday was saying, and I'm just going to paraphrase here, that the trauma to prison pipeline uh, might be another way to put it. We often talk about the school to prison pipeline, but it's very often the trauma that individuals are are um, going through that, that may be leading to that. I uh, had another question here, and I'm not sure if this is something you mentioned or I mentioned, um, but was asking what physical interventions mean in an educational setting. Um, I'm not sure if that was something you talked about or I mentioned briefly, but uh, typically when we talk about physical interventions in an educational setting, we're talking about the use of restraint or seclusion or some kind of hands-on intervention uh, that might be happening. I don't know if you have anything to add to that, Jesse. I would defer to you on that. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah, it might have come up when we were talking about kind of the school-based trauma cycle. Uh, all right. So let me get to a couple more that we have here. Um, and uh, I haven't had a chance to read this completely, but uh, David asked, Jesse, how did you get to the point after your trauma uh, that you were able to be in an education, you know, be educated again? Because one of the things that we see is that kids that are traumatized and, and sorry, going off script here for a second, but kids that are traumatized have a hard time going back to those educational settings they might have a hard time feeling safe. And you made a great point about um, safety. Um, we had a, all, um, a member of our community at one point that wrote a great article. It was called Regulation 
before education. And the point behind that was really that our brains need to be regulated. We need to feel safe before we can learn. Uh, so maybe just uh, David's question gets us a little bit. So uh, kind of thinking about, you know, in your own experience or, or those that you've seen, how do people move from a, uh, a traumatic, maybe school-based uh, trauma to, again, being ready and able to learn? You know, I, I think that it depends on the child. Um and and their experience to to your point i mean there needs to be that sense of safety where they can learn right that there's the aspect of want to and there's the aspect of can and able to and i think that we need to make sure that you know to to the article that i will most certainly read about regulation before education like we need to make sure that you know anybody is regulated before educational opportunities are even possible from there, what, what was huge to me, it wasn't a lack of intellectual capacity to do better in school than I did in college, right? It was the will and the want. Um, you know, through my experiences, I didn't know what the purpose of school was. I really started to question, why am I going to school, right? And it wasn't until I found a mission that I believed in enough. You know, for me, it was before going into my master's program where I got a three nine where like, you know, that that educational uh, not not excellence, but but excelling in education mm -hmm. was able to take place was when I had a reason to be there, which was wanting to create an education system that created opportunities for the students that I met working in Philadelphia, um, where I just saw it wasn't happening. And now it's wanting to create systems that broadly understand how stress and adversity impact humans and how we can foster resilience and create preventative systems so that way fewer people have to go through painful experiences and we can thrive as individuals, families, communities, and as a society overall. Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of times, you know, in addition to the importance of regulation, so that way a student can learn, making sure that we really have a reason for why kids are in school in the first place and having them understand, well, what do you want to work toward? Why is this education helping you get there? How is this education helping you get there? And really connecting the student's intention to success in the classroom, success mm -hmm. socially. You know, I mean, I, I think that that is oftentimes an overlooked aspect is also, you know, just, the purpose that leads to passion that allows for us to dive deep into a book or, or, or our studies and really engage in the intentional and critical way to retain information, process it, and really hold it in as our own so that we can build upon that foundation of skills and become either an expert or, you know, the expert of none, which I consider myself and just like, you know, like a master of all sort of thing. Like, you know, I, I think that that is really a critical and oftentimes overlooked aspect to mm -hmm. the educational process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if I can add one thing, uh, you know, David, I would add to um, uh, a second set of three R's here. Um, you know, my three R's for education are relationship, relationship, relationship. Uh, you know, David, for for your child, and, and I believe you and I are going to uh, set up a talk. I think you you reach out to me. But but for your child, I think one of the most important things in transitioning back is that sense of safety, 
is, and that comes through authentic connection and relationship. Uh, you know, Bruce Perry, I know, has said many times that the healing power of, you know, even a single relationship. Uh, and, and that very often is what is the foundation is, you know, if we want to get, uh, you know, a child feeling safe, you know, that relationship may need to come before, uh, you know, putting a lot of emphasis on the academics. You know, how do we how do we take it? Because I, I believe you're you're have a young child, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and, and that's really critical there as well. Um, I do want to just share a couple more things here uh, just to let you know that that I was right here. We, we do have somebody, at least one person from Australia. Uh, Gail Quigley is a uh, actually a volunteer here at the Alliance. And Gail said she uh, loves your passion. Uh, she also uh, had uh, mentioned someone else as Annette's point uh, and talked a little bit about the intersectionality between uh, trauma and disability. And, and that's something that uh, Gail and I have talked about quite a bit is that intersection. Um, and, and we often find them in kids that, you know, kids that have disabilities uh, may come along with that disability, some trauma. I often think about disabilities that might impact a child's ability to communicate. Uh, autism is a good example. And, you know, imagine how how frustrating or how difficult it is uh, to be living in a world that doesn't understand your, your wants and your needs, uh, that when you're trying to communicate may not be uh, understanding, you know, what, what you need. And of course, you know, there are, there are non-speaking individuals, but there are also individuals that are wired differently and, and may have a hard time, um, you know, communicating in, in the kind of the neurotypical environment. So we often find that the kids that, you know, uh, have disabilities may come with some pre-existing trauma, um, even in the way they, the, the matter of expectations uh, that they've had placed on them uh, and things like that. So that, that's a great point. Um, do you, have you done any um, research in that area, Jesse, in terms of disability and trauma? I haven't done um, specific research other than knowing that there is higher prevalence for a number of reasons. Um, but when I was working at the school that I mentioned, Hill Friedman World Academy, uh, for my first job, uh, one of the projects that I did was creating speeches um, with five students uh, with autism to give to the entire school advocating for their own rights because they felt um, wrongly treated. Uh, and so, you know, to, to your point, Guy, working through, you know, it took us months um, of, of practicing the speeches because of the, you know, difficulty with communication that may come along with autism sometimes. Um, but I think about how rewarding it was um, to see them on a stage giving a speech to hundreds of students. And, um, you know, so no research, just lived experience to see mm -hmm. that, um, you know, neurotypical or not, um, there's tremendous possibility for students with autism. And again, our, our systems just don't operate generally. Most people don't put the time necessary in because they either don't have the capacity or sometimes not the want to provide those opportunities to allow for those students to find something new in themselves. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. Because I can tell you that after those speeches, they knew that they could effectively communicate. It may take some extra work, but you know, that fulfillment was so prevalent. Um, and so, yeah, uh, again, I know that that wasn't exactly the question. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, well, Judy Bailey um, kind of weighed in uh, related to that as well and said, not many people realize the chronic post-traumatic stress disorder experience by individuals with very limited access to communication. Such individuals end up frustrated and misunderstood and consequently secluded and restrained, compounding the trauma. Uh, communication access needs to be a top priority for children and adults who have limited effective speech. Uh, that's a great point. And, mm -hmm. and certainly, um, you know, I actually... I don't know if you saw this, but there was a recent film that was released, uh, and I'm going to have to uh, remember the the title of it. I, I want to say it was uh, "It's Not About Me," and I'll, I'll try to share the link. Uh, but it was about a young woman's experience as a non-speaking, um, you know, child um, who was, you know, plagued by low expectations, um, not given ways to communicate, and kind of goes through the difference that occurred in her life when having access to an AAC device and then having the ability to communicate effectively and, and going on to, uh, you know, college and going on to an internship with the National Disability Rights Network and all the amazing things that she's done. But, but oftentimes there are extremely low expectations on individuals that might be non-speaking or, you know, again, have, have other, um, you know, differences neurologically. Um, and I think that's a huge problem that we see existing in many places. That's a great comment, Judy. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and we, <laughs> you got a, a, Jesse, you're a smart 27 year old, uh, sir. And, and I, I would agree with that. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You, you've Thanks. got a lot of, a lot of knowledge here on this. Uh, all right. Just looking through here to see what else we have. Um, it sounds like you might have a potential, uh, invitation to Scotland. Uh, wish you could come over to Scotland, especially Aberdeen area, uh, to teach our educators. Um, I, so. I think that I saw that chat come up while you were actually speaking, guys. So I can't say that that was okay. Well, why don't we both go? You know, let me know. Guy and I will <laughs> will fly out together. I would enjoy that thoroughly. Yeah, you know, you know, I've been I've been telling Gail that the, the uh, woman who contacted, uh, you know, who commented from Australia. I'm like, you know, Gail, you need a conference out there, and I'd be, you know, happy to come. But as of yet, we don't have one. But you know, if you're interested in that too, you know, we need a a big trauma conference out there. Um, okay, I will so say to that point very quickly, we are putting together a workshop series um, that will be every other Friday from January 7th through April 15th about building the national movement to uh, prevent trauma and promote resilience. Um, and so all are welcome. It's free. Um, if you go to the, the, the website, you can either find it on PACE's Connection or the National Prevention Science Coalitions to Improve Lives um, or National Prevention Science Coalition to Improve Lives. I believe that it's NPS coalition.org hmm. um you can find the sign up form for that so in the meantime we're trying to do workshops spread the word but let's also have a bunch of big conferences about trauma mm -hmm. and we'd love to go all over the world yeah i i mean the, the more awareness the better obviously and and the more we can do to get people thinking about this the better uh, <laughs> i i imagine you'll be sharing that information through um ctip uh, and I'm always happy to share that with our Alliance um, audience. So I'll be sure to keep an eye out for that and share it. And we'll talk a little bit later about how people can stay in tune to the things that you're doing. Uh, let me get to a few more things. And then I actually still have questions. We, this, this conversation go, could go on for hours, I think. Uh, let's see. Um, all right. And uh, this is so important. Thank you uh, for this talk. Let's spread the word. 
uh, kids do well if they can. That's a big thing that we say frequently here, uh, kind of mimicking the uh, uh, the words of Dr. Ross Green that, you know, kids do well if they can, you know, youth do well if they can, adults do well if they can. Uh, when people aren't doing well, you know, it's their lagging skills or unsolved problems and we can help them. Uh, thank you, Judy. The link to that film that I was mentioning, uh, Jordan Zimmerman is a young lady. Fantastic. Uh, and the film is called It's Not About Me. I think you can rent it for like $5 or something like that. It's available online, but it, it really is effective. I mean, again, uh, you know, the difference that AAC can make and an alternative augmented communication device for an individual uh, we've we've shared other guests in the past that have uh, mm -hmm. talked about that. Uh, really fantastic. And, and Annette clarified that both of us would be great. So uh, there, there you go. Um, we'll, we'll Look forward to the plane ride together, guy. <laughs> there you go. Lots to talk about. And, and Gail has invited us to Oz as well. So, uh, you know, uh, it looks like they're fighting. Uh, Annette said Scotland first. Um, all right. And Kat, uh, Kat said uh, huge barriers, communication gaps and miscues. I found my gifted, articulate, and behaviorally challenged son's concerns and experiences are often ignored, minimalized, or turned into victim shaming. That's exactly right, Kat. Uh, too frequently, we just we don't really listen to and appreciate the experience of the individual, um, whether because it's too we just struggle to be empathetic and put ourselves in their shoes. Or like we were talking about earlier, if it's just too painful and that's why we push away, but that's not fair to people who, you know, like Guy was saying, we children, especially we all rely on relationships. We're social creatures, but children in particular need healthy relationships with adults. Mm -hmm. Dr. Bruce Perry talks about how that is the greatest buffer from trauma that a child has is a healthy adult relationship or multiple healthy relationships with adults as well as peers. And so that ability to just listen and not be ignored, not minimize, but really hear them and understand that that is their experience. That is their lived experience and their reality and being empathetic, being compassionate too, even if that isn't how we see the world, understanding that that's how they see the world, meeting them where they're at, also understanding where they want to get to and sort of being along the journey with them, being present for them to help them with whatever it is that they're going through. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I'm going to return back to a couple of questions I had, because I, I realized I got, I got all of my questions very early, which is great because we've had a lot of interaction from our audience. And I would encourage you still to put questions in the chat. We're probably going to go for about 15 more minutes or so. Um, but I wanted to get to a couple of important things that I wanted to talk to you about. One, can you tell us what is CTIP? So the campaign for trauma informed policy and practice is a nonprofit organization that works, to in, that works to create systems change. We work on the policy side as well as the practice side, as our name indicates, we have the trauma campaign where we have advocates. It started as the national trauma campaign and then we have representation from other countries as well. So it's a global movement and we hope to continue to build that um, to advocate for effective policy solutions. And I can go into some of what we're working on in the United States right now as our capacity grows again. Hopefully we move from the federal level to also the state and local level mm -hmm. and from just a United States focus to a broader global focus and supporting advocates all over the world. Uh, but then on the practice side, um, you know, we, we try to have as many educational opportunities as possible. Guy, you presented on a CTIP CAN call, mm -hmm. which are every month. It's our community advocacy network. 
uh, where we give updates from DC as well as provide expert speakers. Um, we do a, we try to put together other opportunities. We have networking calls uh, to leverage other networks that we may not be a part of, but really spread the word, build a grassroots movement. Um, and then we just came out with, we launched the workshop series that I mentioned before, and then also just came out with a podcast um, in with the Center for Educational Improvement and the Coalition um, Against Child or to Alleviate Childhood Trauma. Um, and that's called Cultivating Resilience, a whole, a whole community approach to alleviating trauma in schools. And, um, you know, so we are just trying to have a more spread the word, create greater sophistication in the conversations that we have, influence practice, as well as policy. And really our vision is for community-owned, uh, trauma-informed, prevention-focused, and healing-centered work, meaning that we are investing in community capacity to create their own healing initiatives based on the needs that they have. Different communities have different resources available to them, as well as needs and populations to serve. And so we don't want to be, you know, a one size fits all model of here's how the, here's what trauma informed care looks like. It's really an empowerment model of helping develop effective communication strategies, bringing together diverse audiences to come up with solutions, to create those processes that move us toward a better world. And so investing in communities and giving communities ownership is really our top priority. That's fantastic. And, 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 you know, I have no doubt that the, the work that you are doing is, is changing the world and really appreciate all that you're doing and, and uh, you know, that's being done through CTIP. Um, let's talk a little bit about the legislation, because I know that, the, that we've talked about this before, and uh, I've been on some of the, the CTIP can calls where legislation has been talked about. And of course, the Alliance has supported some of the, the legislation that you've uh, brought forward. And I know you've also supported uh, some of the legislation that we've, um, you know, been supporting as well, like the Keeping All Students Safe Act. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about the kinds of legislation that uh, you're supporting or the kinds of legislation that you're uh, working on? Um, yeah, so, you know, I could go on for a while about all of the different areas that there is work that is either explicitly trauma-informed or supports sort of the values and principles that we hold close to ourselves, right? Like investing in families, investing in child, in children. Um, and there's, you know, some good movement that's going on with that. There is one particular bill that I'll highlight for the sake of time um, called the uh, Rise from Trauma Act that would, again, in that Section 101 creates that federally, a new federally funded grant program to provide communities with funding um, to create their own initiatives, uh, as well as, um, you know, workforce development supports hospital-based interventions uh, to really expand awareness. And so that that's a big bill that we're championing. But there are several others out there, the Strong Support for Children Act, um, the ACERT program, I could go on for a while. The mm -hmm. other piece of policy work that we've uh, been very interested in is around reauthorization language for existing programs to make them trauma-informed. So for instance, we had a conversation about WIOA, which is the Workforce Innovations and Opportunities Act, and making sure that workforce development programs have trauma-informed lens, so that way the people that they are helping to support and, and educate and grow into the future workforce 
have that aspect of trauma-informed care. And there's a lot of existing legislation that we can offer new language to as it gets reauthorized or help to amend. So that way we are functionally integrating trauma-informed values into existing legislation, which would be easier than a new right. piece of right. legislation in right. and of itself, right? So we're sort of doing both of those approaches. Then the new, other- new legislation is not easy. No. Um, yeah, yeah <laughs> the, the system was not designed to make it easy to, yeah. to uh, and, and maybe that makes sense. But, uh, you know, when you have things that uh, you're so passionate about and seem so co- common sense, it, it's hard sometimes to see how slowly things move yeah. uh, on this front. Then, um, yeah, I, I think I mentioned you in the the call before we got on that uh, we had a congressional briefing today uh, related to the Keeping All Students Safe Act, and uh, that was an opportunity to really um, highlight to uh, congressional lawmakers and staff the importance of that legislation. And, and of course, the Keeping All Students Safe Act would ban the use of seclusion. It would ban the use of prone and supine restraint. It would add, uh, you know, money for for appropriate training and in trauma informed approaches and, and better approaches to support kids. I think uh, would broadly be a step in the right direction. We have currently no federal legislation regarding restraint seclusion in schools across the country. Uh, the federal government has provided guidance, uh, you know, on a number of occasions. But, you know, I, I don't think that your civil rights should vary from, you know, state to state. Uh, you know, these are important, important issues. But it was a good opportunity today uh, to kind of share the stories. We had uh, an autistic self-advocate, uh, another self-advocate on. We had an amazing teacher from a, a school in um, D.C. that, you know, really uh, thinks about the the impact of trauma. Uh, join us for that. Um, but a really good opportunity to share with lawmakers and, and staff and, and the members of the public that were on that call why legislation like like this is so important. And of course, I want to encourage people. Uh, and you know, Jesse, we're always happy to um, share things that that you're working on on our social platforms and with our audience. Um, so you know, feel free to always send those kinds of things to me. Um, but you know, I, pr- I appreciate all that you're doing there legislatively because these are important changes. Yeah, you too, Guy. And the last thing that I'll just mention very quickly um, is around the American Rescue Plan Act. There's a lot of funding that's available and it's very flexible that can be leveraged for trauma-informed supports. And so in addition to the legislation, trying to pass new legislation, leveraging the resources that were created through the stimulus funding during the pandemic, Uh, has been a major priority for us over the last 18 months, obviously. And for this group in particular, um, you know, there is there are a few flexible uh, funding streams. One of them is called and this is United States specific, obviously, but um, the elementary and secondary school emergency relief funding, which is um, a a large funding bucket ESSER or funding stream um, that also had some money in the CARES Act, more money in American Rescue Plan Act. And that is a flexible amount of money. Some school district, and and it went to local education agencies, 90% of it went to local education agencies. And so a school district may have already spent the funding, but many of them may not have. And that can be used for training to support the psychosocial, emotional, and spiritual well-being of Mm. students and staff. So to invest in training, to invest in new school practices. Um, It's worth a conversation where you have advocates. To get more information on that, you can go to traumacampaign.org slash ARPA. 
Yeah, you know, you know, there have already been a couple of things in our, our uh, discussion today. That I'm like, Jesse and I need to have a call soon. And, and you know, we might <laughs> need to have a call soon to talk more about some of these things. Anytime. You know, one of the things that I think uh, we've been talking about is the fact that, you know, we are in a difficult time right now. Um, mm-hmm. You know, as as kids have returned to school following, you know, the impact of the, the pandemic, uh, the impact of being isolated, the impact of not having the social connections. Um, one of the things that we anticipated was a potential increase in stress-related behaviors that as kids were getting back to school and coming in with, you know, really a, a whole new uh, level of, of stress and, and trauma related directly to the pandemic and the changes that might have happened in their lives. So this this time right now is really prime for everyone to be a, a bit more, um, you know, in, in a place that, you know, not only have the kids been through trauma, but the teachers and staff and others. And of course, what we know, again, it, it gets down to that idea that, you know, when when a teacher is feeling dysregulated, uh, they can't help a, a child regulate. The fact that we've all been through this adversity together, I think there is a very challenging time right now and probably in the next couple of years uh, and, and making that transition, we need to be more aligned with these trauma-informed and, and brain-aligned approaches uh, if we really want to come out of this without having even more kids suspended, expelled, restrained, secluded, you know, having more corporal punishment. Um, so, you know, hopefully some of that money can be leveraged to to help kids through some of this difficult time. I want to let people know that are watching, if you have any final comments or questions, I've got one that that is is here. Uh, and I've got one myself, but if you have any final questions or comments, now's the time to put those in the chat. I do have one I want to bring up here from Maggie. Uh, Maggie says, I'm autistic and bipolar advocate on Twitter uh, and have dealt with restraining, seclusion restraint for 10 years. Uh, then I was victim blamed every time I started living in fight mode. Do you see a lot? Do you see that often? Certainly more often um, then there should be Maggie, you're, you're not alone in that experience. Um, you know, your, your experiences are yours and they are unique, but, um, we all, so many people in our society are dealt with in a way that forces us into that fight, flight, or freeze. You will either see, it's interesting because trauma, the same trauma can impact different people, different or different people differently. So, what we see in that reaction is either hypervigilance, which is that fight mode that you're talking right. about, or dissociation, which is that flight mode or freeze mode that we uh, also talk about. And so, you know, even more just how that stress and adversity sort of piles up and being dealt with in unhealthy ways that sort of force you into this mode of fight, flight, or freeze um, happens to so many people. Um, and that that is a systemic failure um, that we can sort of learn to correct and and, and have better responses to. Uh, there 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 are ways, and I'm sure that you know you talk about this. That if you had been dealt with differently for the ten year period that you highlight, um, you know maybe you wouldn't have had to live in fight mode at least not as often, because you would have had those relationships that help to nurture support. And so, um, yeah, we, we see that far more than we would like to. Um, mm-hmm, and I mm-hmm. just want to say thank you 
uh, for your advocacy and action uh, to take your lived experiences and similar to, you know, what I try to do. And I think that it's what a lot of us on this call try to do and good people around the world. That's why there is this groundswell of support to build the movement. And it can be really big is that you're taking your own lived experiences and trying to make other people's lives better. Um, and so sincerely for that, uh, thank you. Yeah, uh, great. And, and Maggie, I, I'll too say, you know, one, I'm, I'm sorry uh, about what happened to you um, and uh, that you've gone through what you've gone through. Uh, like uh, Jesse said, I, I really do appreciate that you've been out there advocating. Uh, there's nothing worse. And, and we see way too often kind of the victims being blamed. Um, on a positive note, I think the more of us that come together to try to influence change around these things, uh, the more voices that we have, the better. And I would invite you, Maggie, if you're ever interested, feel free to reach out. Um, you know, if you're interested in sharing your story or, or somehow else getting involved with the efforts that we're doing to try to address these issues. Uh, you know, sometimes one of the, the things that we do that can be you know, therapeutic is the work that you're talking about, advocating for change and um, be happy to talk to you about, you know, things that we can do to, to share your your story and your experience as well. Um, all right. So uh, Nicole brought up having a seclusion closet inside the classroom seems to me that it would be uh, a reminder every day for kids that might uh, be going in there next. Uh, I'm fighting to get them out of classrooms, even though our district now says uh, they leave the door open. I don't trust it. And and Nicole, just to say that if you have a seclusion room, uh, you will, you know, schools that have seclusion rooms likely use them. Uh, there's not much difference to me in between shutting the door and preventing a child from coming out or standing in the doorway and preventing a child to come out. Uh, I would still see those things as uh, the use of seclusion. Um, so these are things we need to continue to to work on and continue to uh, kind of advocate for. So Nicole, thank you for, for what you're doing. Um, I want to, Jesse, there, there are two things I want to ask you. One is, uh, I know your, your colleague Dan Press had planned to join us today and unfortunately wasn't feeling well and wasn't able to. Um, but I wondered if there was anything that you wanted to add about Dan and your work that you do together. Uh, I was actually looking forward to having you together because I remember you describing your relationship and I thought this should be really fun um, and, and maybe we'll have another opportunity. Uh, mm -hmm. But I just want to give you an opportunity if there was anything you wanted to mention about uh, Dan and his work. I appreciate that guy. Um, I love Dan. Uh, you know, he represented Native American tribes for more than five decades, uh, lobbied for them as an attorney, as well as represented them um, on other legal matters. Um, and that's how he came to trauma. And, and he is really one of the founder. I mean, he's a founder of CTIP, but also a lot of the heart and energy uh, for the campaign for trauma informed policy and practice through his wisdom. It's what he wants to give back to the world. Um, and, you know, the experience, the, the healthy relationship that I've been privileged to have for him to take me under his wing since I was 23 and really teach me what I know now about Congress. And, you know, he, he is just such a compassionate guy who wants to make the world a better place um, and getting to see, you know, in, in my shoes at this point in my life and in my career to work every day and have conversations with him about what it's like on the opposite end of a career and really be able to plan for that 50 years of making a difference and see the massive changes that are possible. Um, it's just a privilege to get to work with him and learn from him. Um, and again, I love the guy. I wish 
that he was feeling better today. But like you said, I, I hope that we're able to get on together because uh, when we started doing presentations together, we called it a dog and pony show. And we just <laughs> went around the, went around the country and I, I was obviously the pony. Uh, I, I think at least I'm taller and, and, and whatever. Uh, I guess that, that can be up for debate, but if it well, happens, that'll be happens, the first question when we interview you both. Who's the dog, who's the dog who's and who's the pony? I'll let Dan answer because you know, my opinion. That's right. That's right. No, and I absolutely love to. And, and again, uh, all our best to Dan. Hope he's feeling better. Uh, and I guess that my final question for you, and, I, and I'm going to hold you to that. We're going to try to get you guys back sometime. Um, those that have been watching today or that might watch later, how can people get involved or support the work that you're doing with CTIP? Yeah. So the biggest thing that we'd ask um, is to join the trauma campaign. You can go to traumacampaign.org. There is a join the campaign tab. Join as an individual join as an organization, uh, get other people to join as well. Um, you know, building this movement, this groundswell of support is what is going to help move mountains, not just through the individual direct outreach to your congressional offices or your elected officials offices, but also just being part of this growing movement and showing that we hope to have millions of people who say, I believe in, you know, I am a part of the trauma campaign. We need to develop trauma-informed systems. We need to change our systems and have, like you said, Guy, which I'm going to start sealing, that neuroscientifically based mm -hmm. like methods and reasoning that we sort of create policies and practices through. Being a part of that is the single biggest way to be involved. Again, we also have the podcast, uh, Cultivating Resilience. We have uh, CTIP CAN calls, um, which are open and free to the public. We have the uh, building the national movement uh, workshop series. And then, you know, as a nonprofit organization, just like you guy, um, you know, to, to the extent possible, raising awareness, donating when possible to both the Alliance against seclusion and restraint, as well as the campaign for trauma informed policy and practice, sharing the word, because that helps for us to expand our work as well. And so, you know, those are all great ways, but getting involved in the movement, having your voice be heard, sharing your side of how trauma impacts your life or your community, why these sorts of changes are necessary is the single biggest way and the biggest need that we have um, to get involved. That's great. I appreciate it. And, and anything else you'd like to share with our audience? Um, and we've got to cover a lot of ground today and, and I really appreciate you spending the time today um, kind of sharing your, your experience, your story, uh, the work that you're doing. Uh, any final messages you want to leave us with? It's been a pleasure. Um, you know, I just appreciate this this part of the work. Again, like my my passion for this work came in schools and seeing um, how some students were treated. I, I remember one uh, girl who had autism in particular, uh, watching her be uh, carried out of the school on a stretcher mm -hmm. uh, because she was having a behavior episode, I think is what they called it in the school. Um, but just thinking about all the ways that that could have been prevented and more effective ways to have, you know, intervened in, you know, that day for the child in a more healthy way, because, you know, I remember when she came back to school, she was, uh, she was different for mm -hmm. a while. And, mm -hmm. you know, she went from super energetic to very introverted and, and mm -hmm. withdrawn. Um, and so the work that you all are doing and speaking up and making sure that this issue is understood 
um, by elected officials and other key stakeholders who may not have this um, this sort of idea of what happens in school because they have, you know, the sort of systematized neurotypical idea of how a school day functions. It's just so important. So again, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for the work you do. Um, I hope that this is the first of many, many calls together or conferences in Scotland, Australia. <laughs> if there are other folks around the world, let us there know. We'd love to get some uh, miles on, on the frequent mile. Yeah, I, I feel like I've, I've not been anywhere but Zoom lately. So Right, you know, exactly. It would be nice. It would be nice at some point. Although, you know, it's been nice where you're seated there because the window off to your side there, uh, we, we've watched progress from daylight to kind of, you know, dust to, to evening. So a great view uh, from where you are there. Uh, I, I'll share one final comment here. And Annette uh, said, thank you both. Uh, this has been very informative and makes me realize I'm not crazy, just traumatized. And of course, um, so many of us have been through trauma. Um, and, and sometimes, again, we, we become, um, I, I don't even want to say unaware, but sometimes we, you know, we block some of these experiences out, um, but they, they have an impact on us. And, uh, you know, I think that we have a responsibility uh, knowing better to, to do better. And as we learn more about, you know, neuroscience and we learn more about the impact of trauma, uh, we can become more informed. We can do better for all of those that are that are following us and, and those that are with us today. Um, so I, I look forward to continuing on this journey, um, Jesse, with you and, and so many others doing great work. Uh, I want to thank you for joining us today. Uh, Jesse, I'm going to go ahead and let you go, and I'm going to make a couple quick announcements, and uh, we'll go from there. Um, just a quick announcement. We'll have another event coming up again in two weeks. Uh, and unfortunately, I don't have the graphic today, but I, I want to, um, let's see if I can pull up my calendar here. I'll, I'll tell you exactly what we've come, got coming up on December 2nd. Uh, we're going to have Julie uh, Beam of the uh, Attachment and Trauma Network, and that should be a great discussion as well. So a lot of great stuff coming up. Thank you so much again, all of you that have participated on this call and that are part of our Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. Uh, we look forward to seeing you again very soon. Bye-bye.